Amen. Um, this morning I had a visual and I left it over in my backpack, so I'm going gra- to grab it real quickly. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 23, so if you have your copy of God's Word, make your way there with us. Acts chapter 23. Um, we're talking this morning about God's providence and Paul's path, and it's, it's a pretty interesting um, interchange that takes place. And we're going to hear a verse. It's going to take place in verse 11 today. And in verse 11, Paul's in the midst of some really serious hardships, and it says, the Lord came and stood by him, and he says, just as you testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. And it's it really going to set the course for the remainder of the book of Acts. So if you, you capture that verse, Acts 23 and 11, it, it's going to set the course for everything else that's going to happen as the book closes out. So it's a key verse. But um, what I wanted to say this morning, kind of as a visual, um, for this morning and next Sunday specifically as we deal with God's providence, is that it's not a sippy cup Sunday. All right? It's not a sippy cup Sunday. This, this is not easy water. Okay? This is not easy. This, this is meat and potatoes. Okay? So you're going to need your knife and your fork today um, to digest this and deal with it. Because we're going to talk about some hard, difficult stuff. All right? Because we're going to talk about your suffering, my suffering. Uh, we're going to deal with hurricanes, all those things. We may not deal with them directly, um, maybe as mentioning them, but it's going to apply to them. So we're dealing with world suffering. Why is there evil? If there's a good God who's all-powerful, all-knowing, why doesn't he stop it? Why does he let this happen? A lot of the things that you probably understand or are dealt with at some point, that's what we're going to deal with. So again, not a sippy cup Sunday, all right? So if you got your sippy cup, you need to put it back. You're going to need your knife and your fork today because this is deep water, all right? So um, just... Full disclosure as we start. So Acts 23. Um, so this morning, as we deal with the word God's providence, I thought, man, we could we could set up these different confessions they've made throughout history to kind of define what God's providence is. Uh, we could look at word studies. And literally, it's kind of a compound word, usually meaning kind of see forward. But I thought maybe some examples from the text might better help us capture it. One stowe is um, in Acts chapter 16. The story is of Abraham, right? Father Abraham, right? You, you heard him. We just did one of the kids' songs. Um, you, you may have heard of him, Father Abraham. And so in Genesis 12, God visits this man and tells him that, hey, I'm going to make uh, many nations out of you. And at that point, how many kids did Abram, his name's Abram, it changed to Abraham, but Abram and his wife Sarah have. Do you remember? Zero, right? No kiddos. And so the story goes on, and Abram's wife Sarah begins to get frustrated that God hasn't delivered on the promise. And she says, well, listen, I've got this maidservant, and her name was what? Do you remember? Hagar, right? And, and he says, listen, if you'll just, Abraham, if you'll, you'll come and you guys will, will, will join together, and that'll be my offspring, right, since I can't have one. Um, that takes place, and she gets pregnant, and Sarah gets really upset. And Sarah decides that she's going to get rid of Hagar, Hagar and and drive her out. And so we, we read this text in Genesis chapter 16. It says, and she's run. She's thinking her life's over. Um, there's nothing left. And it says in verse 11, the angel of the Lord says to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord, look at this, I think it's so specific here. The Lord has listened to your affliction. Again, we're thinking about God's providence. And he talks a little bit about who Ishmael will be. And then we come further, verse 13 of Genesis 16. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of what? Seeing. Truly I have seen him who looks after me. He says, listen, you're a God who sees. A God who sees me. There's a seeing God. And that's kind of what we're after here today. This God's providence. There's a God who sees. Now when we talk about a God who sees, it's not just simply that God sees and like 
he's watching the Weather Channel with you and I this morning. Like, oh no, guys, what are we going to do? Do you see the hurricane going there? I mean, what are we going to do with this person? How are we going to help this person out? What are we going to do with this? Come on. Please don't view God through that lens. As if he's in heaven this morning and he's overwhelmed by Harvey and Irma and Jose coming and whatever else is going on in the world and your life and ISIS and everything. That's not who God is, guys. He's not there wondering. He's not afraid. He's not fearful of how's this going to affect his plan. There is a God who sees, but what's specific to the text is this seeing God has intentionality. He is at work. He is providing. He is responding. Further in the story, if you would, just kind of fast forward a little bit. Abraham and Sarah finally have a son, and his name was what? Abraham and Sarah finally have a son of their own, and his name is what? Isaac. Yeah, Isaac. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in Genesis chapter 22... Abram is told, Abraham is told, hey, take your only son whom you love and go sacrifice him. Um, and so on the way, Isaac has this dialogue with his son, with his father. He says, hey, dad, uh, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but like, where's the offering? Right? Like, where's the meat? Like, dad, I, I don't get it. And then Abraham says this, verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Literally, uh, you may have some kind of little footnote there if you look in your Bible, likely connected there to the word provide. And Abraham doesn't necessarily use, we translate the word provide, but he literally says, God will see. And then further, fast forward in the story, God does provide the lamb, right? Isaac is not sacrificed. And then verse 18 or verse 14 of Genesis 22, Abraham says this. So God called the name of that place, the Lord will what? Will provide, But again, you probably have like a little footnote or something right there that's designating the fact that literally he says, he calls that place the Lord will see. Because what the biblical text wants you and I to understand about God's providence, this all-seeing God who oversees everything, who is, has it coming to an intended end, who is watching over all of creation from the very beginning to the very end, the finalities, we, we journey to, toward Revelation 22 and the consummation of Christ returning to set up his kingdom. Is there's a God who literally sees, and in His scene, He is providing. He is directing your course. And um, you're going to join us next week. We're going to talk even more about what it looks like for God to be so in control. Who is this God that's directing paths? And to do that, we're going to have to answer some, some tough questions. And that's like one question might be something like this. So, Blake, if God is the creator of everything and He is orchestrating life, does this mean that He's also the author of evil and sin? Right? So if God created everything and He's like orchestrating life, He is providential, He's overseeing everything that's happening, does this mean that God also, He is the creator or the author of evil and sin? Let's deal with a couple of texts. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For, right? So these kind of help us translate. For God cannot be tempted with evil. So God's not tempted by evil. He's separate from evil is what, what he's telling us there. He has no part of it. Look further with him. And he himself does what? He tempts no one. So he says, listen, the temptation is not, it's not of God. So then how are we tempted? That's the question. But, right, so he tells us, well, you want to know how it happens? Well, here's how your temptation happens. Each person is tempted when, right, he's lured and enticed by what? His own desire. His own desire. He says, listen, there's a God who is good. He is omnibenevolent, right? He is all good. And in His presence, no evil may dwell. And I want you to know, he says, that sin and evil are separate from God. That is not who God is. 
And if you've been tempted or you've dealt with those things, the tendency might be to blame God. But he says, listen, I want you to know that the temptations come through our own desires and evil. Let's be honest. You wonder, like, well, where did evil even necessarily come from? Well, we see it enter the creation, right? Genesis chapter two and three there when Adam and Eve sin, right? Genesis three that unfolds and the ground, the world is cursed. The cursed is the ground. The creation is cursed. You're seeing that right now in the news the last few weeks. You're seeing all these hurricanes. It is a result of sin, It's a result of sin. And so here's maybe a way of understanding, saying, well, 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 Blake, how could I understand evil and sin? It might maybe a correlation would be to darkness. You can see the little lantern there on the screen. We talk about darkness, but darkness in essence really isn't a thing. Darkness is just the absence of what? Light. And so it is when it comes to evil and sin. It's the absence of God's will, His good pleasure. It's the absence of honoring and glorifying God in that moment. So when you see sin in a moment, in a situation, in your own life, it is indeed the absence of God's goodness, His perfect, sovereign, created will. And so you and I see that. And so we have to see, I want want us to look today as we walk through Acts 23, is that in the midst of evil, there's a God who's still in control. In the midst of chaos... And hurricanes, in whatever situation you're in that looks like a hurricane, there's a God who's still in control. I don't know if you've ever joined us any on Sunday nights, but this Sunday night we're going to deal with uh, two questions tonight at six. One is, what's the Bible say about old age? So if maybe you're there or you think maybe someday you'll be there or you're dealing with aging parents or situations in life, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then the second is one that's personal to me, but often I hear folks asking the question, so what about dementia and Alzheimer's, right? Both of my grandmothers suffered from it, and so um, maybe you're there. Maybe you're there with an aging parent. Maybe you're there personally right now, or, or maybe um, Emily's family. They're really predisposed to it. There's a lot of people that deal with dementia, and, and it goes really, it's a long line of it. And so we t- it's something ongoing for us, and obviously both of my grandmothers. But often the question comes, well, I've never heard Granny speak that way before. I never heard Papa like talk that way, right? And and so we start to wonder like, who are they? Are are they really even saved? Is this like the real them? What's going on? So if you've ever had some of those questions, or how do you deal with some of that? Join us tonight at six o'clock. So anyway, there's that. Just as we talk about this evil in the midst of sin, and how do we interpret and understand these things? We're going to deal with it further tonight at six. But I want to throw maybe two things at you today, and then we'll try to throw maybe three more next week. First one is this. God's providence reminds us that He is guiding our lives, even in the darkness. God's providence reminds us that He is guiding our lives. He is directing our lives, even in the midst of darkness. And specifically, we're looking at verse 11, right? Well, we're going to pull from that. That's going to be kind of our guiding verse. But um, the fact that, that God comes and Jesus comes to stand beside him and says, well, listen, don't be afraid. Be of good courage. As you testified about me in, in Jerusalem, so also, Paul, you must now go to Rome. So, again, this, this statement, God's providence reminds us that he is guiding our lives even in the darkness. Look with me, if you would, Acts chapter 23. And looking intently, uh, verse 1 of Acts 23, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus calls a lot of the religious leaders whitewashed walls. And we don't understand, like, what are they doing? But in that day and time, you didn't want to step on any kind of um, grave. And so to mark it because it would make you ceremonially unclean. 
So they would mark the graves with this white wash that would make it really clear. So that way you didn't have to worry about like, oh, no, I accidentally stepped it. It was really obvious. And so Jesus in Matthew 23 and now Paul is looking at some. This is the high priest. And he calls him a whitewashed wall. What's he saying? He said, on the outside, you appear really religious and you got it together. On the inside, you're really a grave, brother. You are full of dead men's bones. Wow. Can you imagine sitting there saying that? That's, that's, wow. He says, you appear religious. You appear like, you, you, yeah, you go to church. Yeah, you know all this. Yeah, you know all the rules. You know all the, but on the inside, you're dead. So those who stood by Paul, verse 4, said, Will you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. And here's the question. All right, two things. One is, maybe Paul's saying, by the way that this guy's acting, he's not acting like a high priest. Right? He's like further like, Hey, I know that if the high priest, he's really the high priest, the high priest doesn't act like that. Right, commanded me to be struck contrary to the law is what he said. He's just violated the law. How could the high priest do that? Or it's quite possible that Paul struggled with his eyesight, and so literally Paul can't see. All right, so there's some question on that. But look what Paul does in the midst of, of a challenging moment in his life. He says, for it's written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So in the midst of it, God's word is ordering Paul's life. And that's part of God's providence of saying, listen, God, there's times when I don't always understand. There's times maybe when I disagree with something, but your word trumps my feelings. Your word in this moment is going to guide my life in the midst of of a difficult, tense moment. And as a church, that's what we're doing our best. There's difficult, tense moments in the church, just like there are in your family. And, And how do we handle those moments of sin and different things that happen? Well, we do our best to follow Matthew 18. And so it says, hey, listen, if there's sin, you need to go to that other person one-to-one. Or if that doesn't work, you take two or three more. And if that doesn't work, they continue. He says, then you bring them before the church. And so at times, that's what happens is there's folks in leadership that are lives are sinful, that are contrary to God's word. And we're going to them saying, hey, listen, your life isn't matching up here to what God's word says. And we're going to ask you to step aside for a season out of that leadership position. Why? Because we want you to get things right. We want things to get right in accordance with God's Word. We love you. We're going to walk beside you. Now, I can't imagine any moment in which we might ask somebody to leave the church. In fact, I've been here 13 years, and we've never once asked somebody to leave the church. Not once. So we have to realize that in these difficult moments, God's Word has to guide us, right? For it's written. That's what he says. Listen, God's Word is our guide. It's our lamppost. It's, it's the light to our path. That's where Paul is. He says, listen, guys, God's word is guiding me. Wow, look at Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Further, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, it says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. He says, listen, as we look today, don't let this become some kind of philosophical discussion, right? Pie in the sky. This is real. This is meant to be lived. That there is a God who loves you, who intends for good for you and not for evil. There's a God who sees all things, who's not overwhelmed by your circumstances today. And he desires to guide your life, to lead you to him. In fact, God's word says in Second Peter that God isn't patient. That he doesn't want you or you or you or me to perish. He's saying to be separated from him upon death. He says God's faithful. 
He's not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He says, but God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to what? Come to repentance. He says, that's God's desire and will. And so God is orchestrating, moving your life, my life. In fact, maybe even you would understand why am I even here today that God would place you underneath the proclamation of His Word, the praise of His Word, the giving to make His glory known amongst the nations, the praying for other nations. I mean, all these things that are happening in the midst of this time together. God is directing your life, that you're seeing these things, you're experiencing these things. You could be sleeping in. You could be far from it. You could be in, I mean, you and I could be anywhere. We've got to realize God is directing. God is doing a great work. And so look what happens. Paul is in the midst of this, and he does something very witty. He realizes there's two groups of folks that are arguing here, and one are the Sadducees and the other Pharisees. And Paul says to them simply a statement. He says, well, verse 6 there, Hey, listen, you want to know why I'm on trial? Because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And boom, it happens. Why? Paul knows his audience. He knows that um, in verse 8 there it records that the Sadducees, they don't believe any resurrection. They don't believe in angels. Um, They don't believe in any kind of spirit. But the Pharisees, what? They acknowledge them all. And so he realizes it, and they begin to get in this big fight, argument, disagreement, right? They start saying, well, maybe an angel spoken to him, whatever happens here. And so verse 10, it says, when the dissension became violent, the tribune, right? He's, he's kind of the ruling officer. He's afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So this is pretty intense. He commands the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bringing him into the barracks. And here's our, here's our verse, right? Verse 11, I want to draw your attention to it because um, it's going to guide what you read in the remainder of the book of Acts. And I hope it's something that begins to set, set in your life to begin to realize there's a God in control. It says the following night, the Lord stood by him. Literally that night, the Lord stands beside him and says, take courage. Don't be afraid. Right? Similar back to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. Do not be afraid, right? I'm, I'm the God that's with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Moses, right? All these different times throughout history. Don't be afraid. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And God is telling him here, listen, Paul, I'm in charge of your life. And we're going to see that lived out. There's a God who is in charge, who is in control. And he says, Paul, your life won't be over until I'm finished with you. I don't know if that brings you a great sense of peace to realize there's a God who is in control of your life and your life won't be finished until God's ready for it to be over. Until you have brought Him the glory and the intended purpose He has for you in my life. He says, listen, I want you to know I am in control. And so that brings us to the second thing. It's this. God's providence reminds us that He knows human plans and can stop or thwart them. There's a God who knows the plans of humans and he can stop them or thwart them. Now, this is going to lead us to another question. Some of you are already there. Hold us just for a moment. We're going there, okay? Look what happens here. Verse 12. See, look at this statement. When it was day. This is a beautiful moment. Watch this right here. When it was day, the Jews made a plot. All right, so when the day comes, they make the plot and they bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There was more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going. This Again, this is a pretension. As though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. 
And then we have verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. What I think is interesting is, is that verse 12 comes after verse 11. Why? Because there is a God who knew before they knew. Do you get it? God showed up, verse 11, and said, Hey, listen, Paul, I want you to know that I'm going to watch over your life. And just like you were faithful to me to testify in Jerusalem, you're also going to go to Rome. And literally what happens the very following day, man's plan comes about. Why? Because God knew it before they did. God isn't coming like to news. It doesn't like scroll across the bottom of his screen like a news ticker or like a sports flash, like, oh, urgent injury or update or whatever it is. God already knew. Right? I mean, he says, listen, guys, I want you to know God already knows. And so verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Might we ask a question there? How does he hear of the ambush? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why am I where I was? And why did I hear that? Why did I see that? Why did that? If you're not careful, your life just becomes a lot of chance. A lot of like coincidental moments you have and like everything is just kind of like a a quinky dink, so to speak. But that's not the biblical view. There is a view in which we don't know exactly how this, this nephew of Paul heard about it. Other than the fact that we have to interpret in light of verse 11 that says, hey, listen, there's a God who's directing Paul's life. And he puts a nephew there to hear. Again, this is the greatness of God. Look, look further with me. Verse 17 of Acts 23. Again, I told you, it's not a sippy cup Sunday. It's just challenging the next two weeks. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. Now look at this. This is even interesting how this unfolds, right? The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. The tribune dismisses the young man. He tells him, don't tell anybody else about this. And then... Verse 23, this is, this is an interesting moment. He calls two of the centurions and says, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And then he begins to inscribe his letter. And that's where the kind of like close of Acts 23 comes. None of this is accidental. Do you see that? Do you see that there is a God who is literally allowed this tribune to hear this? I mean, he could have just said, who cares, right? It's just Paul, right? I mean, if he gets killed, I mean, uh, maybe I know he's a Roman, prison, a, Roman, a Roman citizen, but if he gets killed, I mean, he's kind of an insurrectionist. It seems to be no big deal. But there is a God at work behind this who is directing this, who allowed this young man to hear the conversation, who tells Paul, who tells the soldier, who tells the tribune, who responds accordingly. I don't know of any way to see all of that. And maybe you just say, well, all that's coincidental or that was just sure good favor for Paul. I mean, maybe you interpret it that way. But I look at it in light of verse 11 and say there is a God who intends for Paul to be in Rome and Paul will be in Rome. And so therefore, Paul is experiencing the providence of God. And some of you are here and you're saying, well, listen, Blake, you're making way too much of this. Maybe so. So then this verse is going to really blow your mind. It's Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The ESV records it this way. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The New Living Translation, a little bit more of a, of, um, a, a rendering to help us interpret it easier, maybe. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. 
That's going to mess with some of you. Like, Blake, God's in charge of Vegas? He's saying, Blake, God's... You and I got to deal with it. It's here. What I'm hoping today to do is to give you a lens to look through to realize there's a God who is a lot bigger. He's big enough. We just sang it. Do you believe it? There's a God who's big enough, who knows everything, who's not caught off guard by your circumstances or situation, who's not overwhelmed by Henry or Irma or Ira or Alan back in 1980. He's not worried about Jose out. I mean, there's a God who is greater than this, guys. I'm compelling you today in light of who God is to commit and trust your life and soul to Him. And that kind of brings us maybe to the question that many of you probably were already wondering. It's this. Or maybe something, some variation. If God knows human plans and can stop them, then why doesn't He or why didn't He? That's the challenging question. Right? I mean, you've probably been there. Like, if God's all great, Blake, and He's as powerful as you are, and He loves us and cares about us as much, then why'd my so-and-so have to die? Then why, if He's all big and bad, then why couldn't He just stop these hurricanes from even coming in and causing any of this? I mean, you ever been there, wonder that? Or maybe you, you probably asked that question yourself, or you've been asked that question, or you're going to face it this week, or you've been facing it last week at work. Right? I mean, people are asking, where's your good God at? If He's so good, then why is He letting this happen? That's the question. So let's not run away from it. Let's allow God's Word to help us answer it. And so to do that, again, I want to maybe just look to a story that might provide some clarity to help us get a lens to look through. The story of Joseph, Brother Todd mentioned it earlier. That'd be an awesome one you could read through and kind of see how God's at work in that. But I want to draw your attention maybe to another story today. It's the story of Job. And Job is a man that is blessed I mean, he has 10 kids, he has all this land, he has all this livestock. I mean, it says God even speaks. He says there's nobody else like Job. He's upright in all that he does. And Satan comes and says, you know why Job worships you, God? It's not because you're great and awesome. It's just because you've given him all this good stuff. He says, you take all that away from him and see what he does. So guess what? God says, well, you know what, Satan? Have at it. But the man himself don't touch. And story, if you don't know it, Job loses all of his livestock. All ten of his kids are gone in an instant. Unbelievable. And then this verse comes. Again, we're answering this question. If God knows human plans and can stop them, then why doesn't he or why didn't he? Job says this verse in verse 21 of Job 1. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave. We love that. And the Lord is what? That's hard, isn't it? Because you and I probably in the taking away, we see faces of people we love and care about. We don't understand why. You see that circumstances that you're in, in the midst of it right now, and you don't understand why. And I struggle to answer it too. And then look what Job says, and this, this, is, this is what's so striking about it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the text interprets something very important for you and I. And it says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now what Job doesn't know that you and I do know is that Satan was at work in the heavenly realms. And this crazy scene is taking place in the heavens. And all Job sees is what's happening on earth. And if you're not careful, you'll live exactly the same way. 
You'll interpret everything here on earth by what you see as opposed to looking to the heavenlies in light of God's word and who he is and interpreting every circumstance and situation through him. That's the danger, the temptation. And so again, Job doesn't know it all, but Job just simply says, listen, the Lord gave and the Lord taken away. And then he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, listen, in the midst of losing all my children, I I mean, I I cannot even begin to fathom that. He says, God, you are still good and you're not wrong. What a moment for us, a lens to look through to say, listen, we know we live in a world of evil, a world in the midst of sin and hardship and all this, but our God is good and he is not at fault in this. I know that's a tendency. Listen, like, I mean, I... Full disclosure, I struggle with it too. Like, I don't understand why it's my dad, right? I mean, like, why is my dad God? I mean, I I don't understand. Like, God, you're healing these other people. Why not? I mean, but man, in light of who God is, that you and I could just simply say, blessed be the name of the Lord. God, you're still good. God, you are still good. And listen to what he says. Job chapter 2 unfolds, and I know time would just real quickly... Satan goes back before God. He gets permission now to strike Job physically himself. And Job has is, is got boils and every I mean, he's in bad, bad shape. And verse 9, Job's wife comes to him and says, Job, you know what you need to do? You need to curse God and die. And Job's response is verse 10 of Job 2. But he says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And again, the statement comes. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. There's a God who allows evil into your and my life. That's hard. How could an omnibenevolent, all good God allow evil to come in our lives? How could He allow that situation to happen to you? And you know what those situations are. It's way back in your past, or you're dealing with it still in your present. If God's so good, if he's all-powerful, then where is he, right? Like, why does he allow this to come our way? And we might just simply ask that question, why? And then we have this statement. James chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And in this statement, this is very, very important to us. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. The purpose of the Lord in Job's life is what James is speaking to. And he says, I want you to see the purpose of what was happening in Job's life, interpreting all these years later, all the midst of the hardship, all the things that happened. I want you to see this. Look what he says, that the Lord is indeed compassionate and merciful. Now he's interpreting Job's life in light of Job chapter 42 when God blessed him double. Verse 10 and verse 12, it said God blessed Job in the end twice as much as at the beginning. God restores, he, brings, he gives him ten more kids, and he, he doubles all of his livestock and all of this. And he says, listen, I want you and I to realize, because the tendency is, we don't want to remain steadfast. We don't feel very blessed, wondering, where is our good God at? Why couldn't he? Why didn't he? Do you ever feel that? We may not be wanting to say it out here in front of church folk. But I'm assuming that behind closed doors you feel it and you wonder it. And James just whispers to you and I to remain steadfast, looking at the example of Job, who experienced 
some terrible evils and some really hard things that are hard to explain and understand. And he says, I want you to know the purpose of God in that. It was to show Job mercy and compassion. You see, the question often is, is, well, Blake, if there's a good God, then why is there evil? And it's a really hard question to answer. I really simply would maybe just set it to you like this, that there's evil because God in His love desires to show mercy and compassion and grace and kindness and love and gentleness and patience. And the reality is, you know as well as I do, that you've got to go through some really hard stuff to really appreciate that. It's oftentimes not in the good moments that you ever experience and know that as much as you do in the midst of those valleys, the shadow of death. You begin to say, wow, God, you are good. God's mercy and His compassion. So maybe you and I, in light of what you have gone through or are going through, Maybe you need to ask a question that I have to ask myself in light of this text that we've been looking at today. Could God also be using the bad and hard moments of your life to show you compassion and mercy and to use your life to show other people His compassion and mercy? doesn't do away with all the evil and the bad. Listen, I'm I'm not pretending it's not here, guys. That's not a good approach to this. We've got to deal with it. There's evil, there's bad, there's sin. We've got to... But in light of Job, in light of what we're seeing here with Paul, could we not look at it and say, wow, God, if you used in the midst of their really hard moments to show your compassion and mercy, is that what you're trying to show me? And God, if by your grace, God, that you would empower me to remain steadfast, to continue to bless your name, to say, God, that you're good, even though I don't understand this, even though I don't like it, I would never choose it. God would... You use my life to show others your compassion and mercy. It's hard. This is hard, guys. The good news is, is as much today as we may stand here and say, you know what, Blake, if that's really could be God's will, that he would allow evil and these bad things, then I'm not sure I really like that God. I would say that you and I need to be careful when we say that. Because the truth is, we really like that about God. How do I know? Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, says this simple statement. It was the Lord's will to crush His Son and to cause Him to suffer. That's about as bad as it gets. But yet in the midst of that awfulness, that was God's will, that was God's pleasure... That's where mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness, it flowed out of that great hardship. And you and I today could nothing else fall to our knees and say, God, thank you for your will. I I mean, God, that he would die for me. God, I'm unworthy of that. Lord, thank you. If in light of that, in light of Paul, and in light of Job, might we be able to sit here today not in understanding fully, not saying, God, I grasp all that I'm going through or why it's happened. But, God, I know that you alone can use this for good. Do you know God's grace personally? Or are you looking through this world through your own eyes? I would compel you to come to Christ today, to experience His grace, His forgiveness, that the Holy Spirit would come to live inside of you, that you don't have to walk the road you're walking alone. That there's a God who loves you, who would indwell you by His Spirit, who would forgive you of all your sins. 
who would take away all of your sin and shame, that you could stand before him holy and perfect. And it was through God's will of the hardness and brutality and the vileness of the cross that he brought that beautiful thing to you. Today, is your life in the midst of ashes? There's a God who brings beauty from ashes, and he does so by sending forth his Son to redeem us and to forgive us. Would you respond to him today? Would you pray with me? Father, I know this text is extremely challenging, God. I simply ask, Lord Jesus, that, um, that you would truly use it for your good and glory. That if anything that I've said or done, God, that is contrary to your word or to your divine will, I pray you would strip that from our memory. I pray that you would allow us to see that what I maybe preached in that moment was foolishness. Father, but whatever is truly of your word and who you are in the scripture, even if we may not understand it or emotionally we don't like it, God, I pray that you would do such a work in our hearts that we would begin to say, Lord, help us be more like Job, to remain steadfast. Father, I thank you, God, that you know all things. You know all things, Lord. You're not caught off by hurricanes or the hurricanes that sweep into our lives. You're not caught off guard by those. Father, I pray right now for grace for these people here, Lord, who are carrying great burdens and great hurts from presents to waybacks in the past. And I pray that they would bring those to you and say, God, I want to experience your compassion and mercy in the midst of this. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. I pray this humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen.